welcome to National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And today's episode is going to be, I think, one for the books. I think it's a sneaky one where, like, you're not expecting a lot, but it's going to end up being really fun. Uh, I think definitely so. I I think you personally should expect a lot because I think it's going to be great, but... Well, I mean, because we just raise the bar so high for ourselves every week, right, Em? Yeah. <laughs> well, as the title of this episode suggests, today we are going to be discussing movie cliches in the National Treasure film franchise. We'll get into how we're going to do that in just a minute. It's bound to be a whole lot of fun. But before we dive right in, we've got to start with our screams, I think, yeah? Got to happen. It's got to happen. <laughs> So this is has quickly become one of my favorite parts of any episode. This is our screams from Parkington Lane, our acknowledgement of just how far we have fallen into the pit of national treasure in our daily lives. Emily, do you have a scream to share this week? I do. So I am in the process of moving. And uh, in doing so, I've been packing up a lot of my stuff, uh, opening closets and finding that there's a lot of stuff inside closets and having to empty them out. And this weekend, I really emptied out a a good amount of my uh, closet space. And uh, my boyfriend was over helping me do that. At one point, I I walked into uh, one of the dark closets and asked who wants to go down the dark, creepy tunnel first. (laughs) I love did it just happen like you weren't even thinking it just like came out yeah (laughs) Ah, that's the best oh my god oh that might be one of my favorite screams of yours Emily well done thank you I try what about you Aubrey um so mine is I think way less exciting but it might inspire an upcoming episode if you know (laughs) sometime in the future um I was watching a movie on Netflix um maybe folks have heard of it called Red Notice um, mm-hmm. and two famous actors in it. I like really don't remember. I don't remember much except for being really, really annoyed, really peeved and really angry because they just swiped massive plot points from National Treasure to try to incorporate into this movie and pass it off as something unique or original. It was so infuriating, Emily. I couldn't even concentrate on the movie. It was this whole thing about like, there are these historical artifacts, these like golden eggs from the, like the era of Cleopatra and they're missing from history. And like these kind of these like art swindlers go on this hunt to try to find them because they'll get like a lot of money for them, like very annoyingly basic. And Emily, when I tell you they literally used like the champagne glass to get a fingerprint to open a biometric (laughs) lock. I was like, I don't know, did you even, maybe you used the same set that National Treasure did too. Why not just make it literally the same freaking movie? Maybe they have that foam Liberty Bell. Oh, that's not even, that's not even it. At the end, there was this whole thing where like a clue from the beginning, or not really a clue because it's not a cool enough movie to have like clues, but like an object from the beginning ended up being a key kind of at the end of the movie to open or like unlock the final thing, kind of like the Meerschaum pipe from the Charlotte Mm -hmm. at the end. And I was like, wow, get some originality, guys. (laughs) So I was, if you can't tell, very angry. I couldn't no even, way. I couldn't even like focus on the movie. Honestly, right, yeah, this is, this is the rage that you're seeing now is just a fraction of what I felt in the moment. And so I'm just going to put it out there, Em, that maybe we need to do a National Treasure versus Red Notice episode sometime in the future to really air the grievances. That sounds like a fun, fun time. I've been meaning to watch the movie. Perfect. All right. Mark it down. It's going to happen. So those were our screams. One was very, you know, filled with humor and one was filled with a lot of rage. Um, If y'all have screams to share, little instances of national treasure popping up in your daily lives, definitely tell us about them. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. We are also available for your listening ears on Spotify, SoundCloud, and 
uh, Apple Podcasts. <laughs> Please go ahead, follow us, subscribe, like, rate, review, do whatever you can on those various platforms to let us know that you're tuning in and that you enjoy National Treasure to the extent that we do. And while you're at it, go ahead and check out our merch store which is linked in our link tree in our Twitter and Instagram bios. There you'll find t-shirts, notebooks, stickers, magnets, anything that you could think of that has some various National Treasure Hunt logos on it, as well as some fun little quotes that we've come up with. Uh, Go ahead and check that out, guys, and just keep talking to us. Yeah, you know, sometimes I get the question on social media, like, how can we support you? Because we don't have like a Patreon or anything like that. We believe in equal access of our content to everyone. But, you know, honestly, if you want to support us, the best way you can is to leave us positive reviews and buy something from our merch store. We're super grateful for all of that support. And uh, with that, let's jump into today's episode on movie cliches in National Treasure. Now, I will admit the impetus for this episode is kind of serendipitous. I was bored one day back on Netflix, and instead of getting enraged at Red Notice in this particular instance, I decided to watch a fairly short special on Netflix hosted by one of mine and Emily's, like the actors that we have in common that we like, the one and only Rob Lowe. And Rob Lowe is hosting this Netflix special called Attack of the Hollywood Cliches. Now, I started watching it just to be entertained for a hot second. And within five minutes, I had picked up a notebook and started taking notes for what would be this episode. So that being said, if you want to like follow along and to really understand this episode in its fullest form, do feel free to check out Attack of the Hollywood Cliches on Netflix. But you don't need to watch it to to really understand what we've got going on here for you today. We've got Emily explaining all the cliches for us, so we're going to be in really good shape. (laughs) Yes, because unlike National Treasure, a 58-minute docuseries is the kind of thing that can grab my attention, and I do tend to remember. Woof. How we're going to run today's episode, if you watch the special, you'll notice that within an hour, it flies through more than 30 movie cliches, which is, like, aggressive. And we're not going to touch on all of them because we are not nearly that aggressive um so spoiler alert the ones that we don't talk about are like super irrelevant to the national treasure franchise so take that as you will you know regarding how cliche filled national treasure is or isn't um but what we will do is we've selected eight movie cliches to sort of deep dive into with respect to national treasure then we're going to do one of our famous speed rounds with eight more cliches and then we'll finish with an overall assessment of the use of cliches in National Treasure, including a bit of comparison to some of the similar franchises that we've talked about in our comparison episodes in the past, things like Indiana Jones, Jungle Cruise, etc. So with that being said, Emily, I think we've got to jump right into our deep dives. The first movie cliche that we're going to talk about is the meat cute, which I know you're a huge fan of. So you want to explain to us what it actually is? Uh, I think you're saying I'm a huge fan of it because I like romantic comedies and I like love stories, which is fair. Um, But a meet-cute isn't always involved. Regardless, a meet-cute is basically when something kind of ridiculous happens that would likely cause some kind of annoyance in real life, but it brings two people together to, to like meet for the first time. So, like, an example that they used in the special was some guy spilling coffee on a woman's shirt. And, right, like, normally if you were that woman, you'd just be, like, super annoyed and walk away from the guy. But in the case of the movie that they were examining, it ends up forming a relationship between the guy and the girl. Uh, It's not always something super ridiculous. Sometimes it can be as simple as like dropping a notebook and having somebody pick it up for you or, you know, dropping your books in the school hallway and having a guy pick it up for you, that kind of stuff. Uh, But it's basically a scheme to get two people to interact with each other for the first time in what will become a romantic story throughout the movie. Gotcha. Okay. So I'm curious then to see 
your thoughts on if and how it appears in National Treasure? Because like, I don't know if you consider um, a warning of an impending heist of a declaration of independence to be a minor annoyance for someone like Abigail Chase. But <laughs> for me, when I think about National Treasure and the concept of a meet, a meet cute, and I think about Ben and Abigail, I personally don't think that this really applies um, because in part, I guess in part because the love story is such an afterthought that it's not like they're meeting. Oh, Aubrey. It is such an afterthought and you have to admit it. It, it, their meeting is very pragmatic and almost like on business terms. And those, their interactions don't become truly romantic until the latter third, if not latter quarter of the movie. So I personally think that there's not a meet cute between Ben and Abigail. I would say that there is maybe a silly one at the end of National Treasure 2 with the the cute girl who asks Riley about his book at Mount Rushmore and he like has the bag and he drops it because he's like, oh my God, a cute girl's paying attention to me. Mm -hmm. And so I think it applies more there, but I would be curious to hear your immediate thoughts. I mean, I definitely think I agree with you. I don't really see Ben and Abigail meeting as like a meet cute. I think the the idea of the cliche of having like a guy and a girl in a movie and having them like fall in love with each other is kind of mm-hmm. like more what's seen here. But I don't think that the meet cute aspect of it is exactly what's what's going on. Because like you said, like the first time they meet really is when he goes to her office to talk to her about the declaration being like going to be being stolen yeah yeah for sure I mean she's clearly like amused slash annoyed by the situation but it's definitely not going to trigger an immediately like an immediate romantic storyline right but when I was thinking about this um I'm going to stretch this a little bit when I was thinking about the concept of a meet cute and like situations in this movie where there's like clear awe and like a relation, a weird relationship has been formed, maybe not necessarily between people. I think of like this spark moment in the first movie with the declaration and Ben. And I think (laughs) of it when Ben is staring at the declaration of independence at the archives and he has that whole, 180 years of searching and I'm three feet away moment. And he like does the whole reading of the declaration and, you know, he's really passionate in that moment. I'm not saying anything weird about like him and the declaration at all, but like, he's definitely (laughs) more passionate in that moment than he is in say meeting Abigail, which actually ends up being his love interest. And even so, I think it's even funnier. There's actually some humor here because I almost feel like the declaration is like the third corner of a weird love triangle between Ben and Abigail later in the movie. Right. I can see that. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because I mean, they both clearly have such reverence for this document, but it really comes to a head in Parkington Lane when Ben drops Abigail to save the declaration from falling. And Abigail's like, oh, no, no, I totally understand. I would have done the same thing. Like, <laughs> So I guess this is a really long-winded way of me saying I feel like there's more of a meet cute with like Ben and the declaration than there is like between <laughs> Ben and Abigail. Um, and you know what? This actually really works for me personally. Um, I actually like that it's not used for like the main love story of Ben and Abigail. And I think that's because if it was, I fear that I and other audiences would have taken Abigail's role in the actual treasure hunt less seriously if it was really pitched as this romantic journey from the onset. Mm. Do you have any thoughts yeah. on that? No, that's very true. I mean, when you, I feel like when you first see Abigail and Ben interacting because you're watching a movie and especially because it's a Disney movie, you kind of know like, or at least I knew like, oh, they're going to end up together. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I agree that the, the characters didn't seem to know that. And I think that's the important point is that 
they were focusing on a different kind of motive than somebody like me watching the film was. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Um, yeah. I completely agree. Um, and I really feel like if you're going to use this trope, might as well throw it in as a comedic bit at the end for your comedic character with Riley, right? At the end of National Treasure 2. Like that's, because now you're almost making fun of the trope. Like we're all in on the joke together. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I like I like its use at the end of the second movie. Oh, now if only we could get a National Treasure 3 to find out if uh, Riley and the redheaded girl are actually together. I mean, yeah, that clearly is going to be the main emphasis of that film <laughs> if it does come about. So <laughs> I'm invested. Oh my gosh. Okay, so I think we've done everything we need to do with the meet cute let's move on to the second cliche we'll dive into which is the maverick cop would you care to explain emily okay guys so this one is pretty simple it's basically about a cop who takes the law into his own hands he typically does kind of the wrong things but for the right reasons like he doesn't necessarily follow police procedure and stuff like that but is doing it to catch the bad guys because he or she knows uh like what is right and wrong and feel that they can do a better job of getting there than other people who are within the police force themselves so you might be wondering why we chose this one to focus on and the simple answer is we had to get a little bit about agent sadusky in there you know just we just had to answer the question of whether or not agent sadusky is a huge cliche and i was kind of hoping the answer would be yes because it would be another reason for me to be annoyed by him but unfortunately i feel like the answer is no agent sadusky our cop figure is not a maverick cop do you agree emily I do. I think I would need to know a little bit more about FBI procedure to really be able to say for sure. In a lot of ways, I feel like he's acting more like a cop than he is like an FBI agent. And I'm not sure where those jurisdictions kind of over overlap mm-hmm. with one another. Um, he definitely does some things in the film that suggests that he might be acting outside of his like jurisdiction in the FBI. Like I don't know if his hunting Ben down necessarily is is part of his FBI duty. I think that's I think the way he's presented, I don't think he's doing anything really outside of his jurisdiction, especially in that sort of a formality. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like I don't think he's going to get a huge team of agents to be able to chase, like hunt Ben down if he's not like permitted to do that. I actually think the only places where he airs up on or like edges up on the, the possibility of, of not following the rules would be like when he meets Ben outside of the Capitol in national treasure Two to talk about the secret book. Even so he gives him minimal information and doesn't actually tell him the information that he wants that Ben wants. <laughs> You know what I mean? So it was a pointless meeting anyway. Yeah. And even something like when he lost Ben on the deck of the USS Intrepid, (laughs) that's just because he's doing his job poorly. It's not that he, right? So like from my perspective, as everyone knows, Agent Sadesky is like borderline the butt of the joke and borderline a villain because he is pursuing Ben. And so as a result, Ben is sort of fighting against the formal villain of the movie. So the Ian or the Mitch and his second villain, which is like the FBI. Mm. Um, And so to be honest with you, I really thought I wanted Sadowski to be a cliche, but then I think of how that would have to fit in the movie. And for that to fit in the movie, I think Sadusky would have to go rogue and be actively helping Ben. Yeah, because I think one of the things that we tend to forget in, you know, getting caught up in this movie is that Ben is doing the illegal thing. Mm-hmm. Like, he is doing the wrong thing. So in order for Sadusky to be a, a maverick cop, he would also have to be doing the wrong thing but Mm -hmm. for the right reasons exactly and as much as i 
like to complain about Sadusky, it's not so much the fact that he's doing his job that annoys me, than it is that he's doing his job so poorly. So um, in the end, I think the movie or the franchise as a whole would actually lose a lot of the inherent tension um, if Sadusky was like actively and obviously on Ben's side. Um, I guess the only other way you could argue Sadusky is a maverick cop is if you buy into the theory that he was doing a bad job on purpose to help Ben, um, which we've mm. talked about before on the show. Um, but again, I really feel like his lying to Ben about not knowing where the Book of Secrets is kept and the deleted scenes in at the Library of Congress in Book of Secrets where he's trying to shoot Ben. <laughs> <laughs> really negate this theory yeah i mean once you start trying to shoot at someone i feel like it's it's you don't really have a partnership with them as ian demonstrated early in the first national treasure movie i think uh that's a really excellent point so um so that's the concept of maverick cop so far not too many obvious cliches here until we get to the third cliche we're going to talk about where we're a little bit more in the cliche mix and this cliche is called the smurfette principle which i had never heard it be called this before but emily i think once you explain it everyone who's listening is to be like oh i know exactly what you're talking about yeah so basically the smurfette principle is the idea of having like one woman in a group of guys and having that token woman character to kind of fill that role of being able to say like, oh, we had a woman in here. And it's named the Smurfette Principle because it famously is seen among the Smurfs where they're all male Smurfs, except for the female Smurf, which is Smurfette. And uh, oftentimes with the Smurfette Principle, the woman that's in this group of guys is either ogled at by the men in the group or treats the men kind of like their children so the example that they gave in the special itself was in uh avengers age of ultron um black widow is the only female that is in the group of avengers and she makes some comment about cleaning up after them uh <laughs> kind of like a mother would do uh to her children yeah so right off the bat this feels like an obvious, yes, this exists in National Treasure, right? Because you have your two main guys, your main guy and his sidekick, your Batman and his Robin, and then you got to throw in a woman, Abigail, for good measure, alongside Ben and Riley. Right. Um, so definitely on the surface, we have the Smurfette principle in National Treasure. I mean, Emily, you and I have talked a lot about the lack of women in general in national treasure <laughs> mm -hmm. um abigail is certainly um i think as the netflix special put it quote unquote the lone woman in the testosterone filled adventure um mm -hmm. especially in the first movie i mean in the second movie we get professor helen mirren but she's yes. a little bit of an afterthought um however it's not as straightforward as like you were saying, like the Smurfs example. Um, I even think of like some scenes in Harry Potter for some reason where Hermione is like, oh boys. And like, you know, making comments about how dumb Harry and Ron are and things like that. <laughs> you don't get that side of the Smurfette principle in National Treasure. You know, That's true. Abigail, when she first pops up, you get the really inappropriate, like, oh, a hot man or angry blonde lady or whatever, hot blonde lady, whatever you might want to call her uh, or whatever Riley might want to call her when right. they first meet her in National Treasure. That's the extent to which she is there to be, quote unquote, ogled at, mm -hmm. right? After she becomes part of the team, which is pretty immediate after the declaration is stolen she becomes as we've said ben's intellectual equal and almost more important to the hunt from that point forward than another key male character i.e riley right true yes that's very true and i would I say that 
Yeah. So she's like, she's almost taken on the number two billing, right? As opposed to, as opposed to Riley. And I would say that this intellectual equivalency between her and Ben is, is so much at the forefront of her character that the romantic relationship that you expect to form, right? That you and I went in saying, this is a Disney movie and they're going to fall, like fall in love because that's how Disney movies work. It ends up happening, but you don't, really see it develop very strongly mm-hmm. right such that it almost ends up feeling kind of random at the end when he kisses her before they go into Parkington Lane <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah I I also do agree with that it does feel a little random at the end like you I, I wanted it to happen but it also feels very very sudden in many ways yeah. which is definitely interesting it definitely suggests that he hasn't been there the whole time you know like ogling her yes um, and i think also an important part is that you know when they first meet i think she has kind of the like calm down children vibe about her <laughs> because when ben goes and ben and riley go to tell her that the declaration of independence is going to be stolen she's just kind of like uh-huh sure guys yep mm-hmm. like calm down it's all good we're like that could never happen like you're fine uh but it doesn't really extend beyond that you don't hear her making more comments beyond that first meeting kind of about how they might be seen as infantile compared to her right i think she realizes very quickly it's not just on ben's end that he sees an intellectual equivalent in abigail i think she too ends up seeing an intellectual equivalent in ben it's very two-way street yes i agree and so i don't know to me the smurfette principle is like one of the most egregious like concepts it's like very icky it's very like oh we just need a woman in here for to check a box or or whatever in I think in the way it was originally conceived and why it started popping up in film at first um so when I say that the Smurfette principle looks like it applies on the surface of national treasure I don't want it to come across as if I'm criticizing the fact that there is a female character right you know what I mean because it's far better to have a female character present and on top of it, have one who is quintessential to the goals of what's happening in the plot of the film. Like, mm-hmm. I think if you're going to have two men and one woman as your main characters, like we have a national treasure, this is how you do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? True. You do it in a way that that almost makes you question whether that relate that Disney relationship is going to form because she's so intelligent. She's so involved. She's so good at what she does. Plus we also stand the, you know, two women in the franchise being the most educated of all the characters. So. Hashtag PhD. <laughs> um, okay. So that wraps up our discussion of the Smurfette principle Now we're going to move on to another classic, the concept of montages. Yes, so montages, montages, montages. Montages are a way to move along storytelling by basically cutting a bunch of clips together of scenes that would normally take place over like a longer period of time. So these are often used for things like training sequences where it's going to take somebody you know, many days or more likely, you know, weeks uh, that it's going to take these people to actually be able to learn these fight moves and stuff like that. Um, Or in heist or kind of general planning of things, sometimes montages are used to show changes in the season. So there's a scene at the end of um, one of the amazing Spider-Man movies with Andrew Garfield, where they show him looking at a, a gravestone and the seasons change around him. And that's to show, you know, the extension of time over that. But they're able to communicate that within, you know, a two second period of time. So it's really a way to kind of shorten stuff and get as much concept in there as possible. Yeah. And, you know, when I was thinking about montages in National Treasure, um, at first, I didn't think we had one because when I think of montages, I think of training sequences, like you mentioned, like the special mentions as well. And obviously we don't really have like fighting 
as right. being relevant to National Treasure. But then I realized the more I thought of it that National Treasure, the first movie in particular, does have a montage. And it happens to be one of my favorite parts of the whole movie. It's mm-hmm. the montage of Ben and Riley doing all of their like planning and prep work to prepare for the declaration heist. Right. And it's the it's yep. the it's the scene that our theme music is based on, right? Em? I was gonna say I'm hearing the music now. <laughs> So, of course, we're talking about the, I was going to say the scene, but it's really the montage where we have Riley playing with the camera feed at the metro station, you know, to get access to the archives, you know, Mm -hmm. security camera. We have Riley with the thermometer, seeing if he can use um, a laser to make the, the temperature increase. We have Ben examining the archives floor plan to understand where he needs to go at the gala. We also have Ben kind of messing around with the George Washington campaign button and that fluorescent powder that he's going to, you know, have sent to Abigail. It's an amazing, amazing sequence. And I love it so much because it connects so many dots in their plan and really shows the level of thought that goes into every step of the plan. And it's what makes this impossible heist at least plausible because they cross all their T's and dot all their I's, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I have to say the one thing that I really do love about it, and I think one of the reasons why, even though montages are kind of a cliche, I I don't mind them, is because, especially with this montage, it, it gave us, like you said, all the nuts and bolts of what they're doing, but it gave it to us in... A very short time which made the whole heist to me seem more exciting yeah. like not that stealing the declaration of, of independence in itself wouldn't be exciting but by having like back to back like riley checking the thermometer ben has the floor plan we're doing this thing with the button we're doing this thing with the cameras all shoved into a very short amount of time it like builds the excitement for the yeah season. and if you're just a casual viewer you watch all of this and you don't really know where it's going but it's only through multiple rewatches of the movie or having conversations like we do on this podcast where you start connecting the dots and you're like oh that's why he was pointing to that room in the floor plan or that's where you know what this part of the montage corresponded to in the heist and you get like a greater appreciation i think Mm -hmm. for the actual planning but another really amazing part of this montage is that there are two montages in one because as we're watching ben and riley's preparations in an adjacent and intertwined montage we're watching Ian's team and their preparations at the same time, which is basically just building bombs. <laughs> so like, so, true. so it's like much less exciting intellectually, I guess you could say. Um, so I loved the use of montage in the first National Treasure. What I think is interesting, however, is that we just discussed for literally several minutes why having a montage to precede the actual heist of the movie is so good for the plot of the movie and like the viewership. Interestingly, National Treasure 2 does not give us a montage ahead of the heist, right? Ahead of kidnapping the president. All we get are, you know, some footage of Patrick and Riley calling the different like approved birthday party locations where the White House could book the president's party and like booking them up so that the White House can't book it, right? Right. That's all we get in terms of planning for the heist for the most part. Am I right? I think I can't think of a single other thing that they really show. No, you're right. And I think that that's kind of part of the the reason and we've talked about this before that we don't like the heist in the second movie as much as we do in the first movie. Uh, part of that's definitely, I think we've also mentioned before that we don't see as much of what goes into yes. the heist in the second movie as we do in the first movie and like now we can identify why that is it's because we don't have a montage so when ben starts doing stuff in order to get to the president you're kind of like when he goes scuba diving and stuff like you're kind of surprised that he's doing all these things you're not expecting it but when all the things are done in the first one you are expecting them to happen because you've seen 
like the basis behind all of those decisions. In the first movie, you're expecting it all to come together. In the second movie, you're just along for the ride and it almost makes the heist, the fact that the heist works in the second movie, more serendipitous, right? Mm -hmm. It seems there's so much less planning that we are privy to. So it's just like, oh yeah, I, I guess it worked that he jumped out of the boat into the water. And I, I guess it worked that he was able to, you know, walk up with a champagne glass to avoid suspicion. And I guess it worked that he just happened to have this map. And I guess it, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it, it feels much uh, less intentional. Agree. And I think, you know, to be fair, there are plot reasons, perhaps, why you don't make that choice, the montage choice in National Treasure 2. And that's probably the fact that Mitch, our villain, in case you forgot, he's like MIA during all of this. Like, he has nothing to do with trying to talk to the president or finding the book. He doesn't even really know the book exists ever, really, remember? So he's just like out there waiting for Ben to do all the hard work and then he's just going to pop up. So there's no reason to see this sort of battling of the plans. Like you have Ben and Riley versus Ian in those montages in the first one. You know what I mean? So I think Mm -hmm. that might be some of the rationale. I do think, however, now that we've had this conversation and I feel like this has been a giant aha moment for me. um, I do think I would have enjoyed the heist and national treasure two more if we got a planning montage. Agreed. Definitely agreed. And I didn't realize that before today. Nor did I. So thank you for bringing this to light, Aubrey. Oh my gosh. It is my pleasure. Um, Okay. Well, that's a good place to end the montages conversation. Let's move on to Emily's favorite cliche, car chases. There's a car. It's chased by other cars. I hate it. (laughs) You know what's really funny to me? You have thought for such a long time that I love car chases. I also also don't like car chases. I just thought it was really cool that National Treasure 2 did this whole behind the scenes to show how they choreographed the car chase. And you know how into behind the scenes anything I am. Mm -hmm. So that is where your entire preconceived notion about me and car chases came from. It is. So uh, I don't think we need to spend too, too much time on on this one, except for to say that uh, our car chase is relevant to National Treasure, LOL, yes. There's one in each of the two movies, right? We have the car chase uh, in the streets of DC after the declaration heist in the first film. And then in the second film, we have the car chase in London where the bad guys want to get the Olmec plank from Ben uh yeah I would say that there's really not much more to say about this I guess I guess National Treasure 2's car chase had more stereotypical components of a car chase like the cars skidding a lot and debris flying everywhere like those beer um vats you know flying all over the place and the cars being in places they really shouldn't be like those narrow alleys that are restaurant areas and everything like that you don't get that so much in the first movie's car chase Mm -hmm. um i thought abigail dangling from the food truck door was a nice unique touch in the first movie but unique is true you know i mean it gave it a little edge a little spice but uh yeah i think i gotta say that if we get a national treasure three I feel like it's a safe prediction to assume we will get a car chase in that movie, but it just doesn't add much to the movies in my humble opinion. I, I can agree with that. And uh, Emily, I, I fear you already feel that we've spoken about car chases too long today. So shall we move on? Yes, please. <laughs> All right. Our next uh, deep dive cliche is badly timed tech fails. So this is that scene where at the moment when you need it the most, the tech that you're using glitches. So this could be during a heist when the bad guy is like about to walk in the room, or it could be like an example that they used in the Netflix special when you're climbing up the side of a building and suddenly the tech in the gloves that you're using to climb up the side of the building stop (laughs) working and that creates a dangerous uh, situation. 
And basically the idea of these badly timed tech fails is to add an additional level of suspense to the film. Yeah, so when we think about National Treasure, I actually think this is pretty interesting because especially in the first movie, tech is used so much. You know, Riley is an integral part of the heist because of the planning sequences, the whole planning montage that we saw, all of his little tech tricks, the science tricks. We've done whole episodes on these topics. Um, So there are a lot of opportunities for tech to fail in National Treasure, wouldn't you say? I think, yeah, I, I, you know, when I watch it, because we know that I'm continuously surprised, by things that happen in the movies i am always surprised that like everything just works exactly exactly you almost expect the tech to fail probably because of this cliche being burned into our brains actually (laughs) um but really i would say that all of the true suspense the anxiety the conflict in these movies is really related to interactions with the villains you don't really see technology failing the plot. And I think part of that really is because you're meant to, you're meant to believe that Riley and Ben are these really intelligent people who are doing their jobs in the heist. They know what they're doing. They've put in the due diligence. We get to see that, especially in the declaration case. So we get this, we we watch them reap the rewards, right? I would say the only possible tech situation in National Treasure is when Ian's team takes over Riley's video feed, Mm. which isn't really a fail. It's not like his feed just stopped because he did something wrong. Right. You you know, Um, and they were able to pivot and and make everything work anyway. In National Treasure 2, we also get a very brief split second where everyone's cell phone cameras just happen to be broken when we're in this car chase scene in London and we need a picture of the plank. But again, they just immediately overcome the problem because we're meant to see that they are really intelligent, thinking on their feet, etc. So they just use another tech. They use the red light camera. Right. So I don't really think that National Treasure falls into this cliche of tech fails that are badly timed. And I personally am really good without the obvious cliche showing up here. Yeah, I don't think that it would have added a lot, especially thinking about the Declaration of Independence stealing. I don't think it would have added a lot to that scene in terms of suspense. The whole thing was pretty suspenseful because not only was he, not only was Ben going against like, Ian's men at the same time but he was also going against like the museum security yeah exactly I think once again we would have been far less impressed by what they were able to accomplish in the plot if if we had these tech fails also you think about all the different times at which technology and science are used in the declaration heist and honestly one wrong move and the whole thing doesn't work like, there's honestly no way to plot your way around that. Mm. You know, there's no way to be like, oh, you know, the cleaning lady came by and cleaned off the, the keyboard. So now we can't tell which buttons Abigail right. pressed. Like, what do you do if that happens? There's like, nothing. You, just, you don't do it. <laughs> exactly. So I guess there's that component as well. I also just like the unexpectedness of the tech actually working. Um, Mm -hmm. And that just makes the tech scenes really elegant alongside the montage that really supports it. This actually reminds me a little bit um, when we did our Ocean's 8 comparison episode. I I think I mentioned how I really loved that the whole plan that the women come up with in Ocean's 8, it just works seamlessly Mm -hmm. um, because it just lets you enjoy the elegance of the plan. And I think that is something that really applies here as well. I, I definitely agree with you, Aubrey. All right, let's move on. I think we only have two more deep dives to get into. The next one is a fun one. It is the concept of having a British villain. Well, in movies, villains are often made British because with their accents, it seems as though they are of a higher class or have more worldly knowledge. Uh, This is done to essentially bring another layer of dimension to the villain characters 
without having to spend a lot more time with the character kind of fleshing out a story for them. Um, so it's kind of like a one-shot, very quick way to do it. And it also separates some of these kinds of villains that do have the British accent and are supposed to be more high class and stuff like that from just brutish villains that you might have seen in older films. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I would just like everyone to know that in our little note sheet here, um, I wrote in the section that says, Aubrey explains whether relevant to national treasure question mark. I wrote, ha 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 yes exclamation point (laughs) um but once again this is another case where i think similar to the smurfette principle the surface answer is like duh obviously but if you if the rationale that you explained for the cliche is important then if you dig deeper into the national treasure case it doesn't necessarily totally apply so of course what i mean by that is ian howe is our token british villain in the first national treasure movie so he is british he is wealthy you know the some of the things that you're mentioning about like high class whatever um but it's very clear to national treasure scholars like ourselves that the choice of using a British villain in this movie was made explicitly to parallel the Revolutionary War historical context of the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Be, you know, the the British were the, well, at least from America's perspective or the colonial perspective, they were the, the villains, quote unquote, in the historical context. So our villain in this heist that involves Revolutionary War history, is also British. It's not explicitly to assert Ian's sophistication, as like as you mentioned. So it's almost like an accidental cliche. Mm. You know what I mean? That's interesting. I didn't think about it that way. Yeah, I mean, think of it this way. We don't see a British villain in National Treasure 2, and the movie still works. I mean, I actually personally think that the parallels between the villains in this franchise and the American history associated with the movie is really effective and like um really creative really gives more deep meaning to who the villains are so honestly give me like a southern villain in national treasure to any day like this works for me yeah agreed it definitely it definitely does work for me i the thing that really excited me about this though i have to say is the fact that we when we were earlier on in making uh, this podcast in general, we kind of made note a lot of the times that it seemed like all of the villains were British or had a British accent and that this is actually, I didn't know that was like an actual cliche in movies. I hadn't thought about it before. So like seeing that it's an actual cliche is something that is really interesting. Totally. That's actually completely forgot about that. That's a fun, that's a fun tidbit. Um, all right, Emily, let's go on to our last deep dive before we go into our speed round, which I'm always excited for. Um, the last deep dive cliche is the good guy always wins. Yep. So basically what this cliche is, is there's always this kind of tension at the end of the movie, even though, you know, the good guy is pretty much always going to come out on top. And in movies, this is accomplished very often through the good guy killing the bad guy. And what this does is it leaves us at peace and in a world that's deemed safe to us because the bad guy no longer exists. Got it. So I think before I say anything, we should preface the National Treasure context here by saying... National Treasure is a Disney franchise, so, duh, the good guys end up winning, Um, but like you mentioned, Emily, the the Netflix special really asserts that this trope, this cliche, is often the result of the hero killing the villain, and so, again, Disney, that's doesn't really happen here. Ian was only sent to jail in National Treasure. He's not dead. And while Mitch died in National Treasure 2, that was never the intention of like Ben and his posse. 
and I would even argue that like the whole good overcoming bad part of this cliche is a little questionable in National Treasure too, since Ben reluctantly gives Mitch credit for finding the treasure. So it's not like the bad guy is totally scorned from his purposes, you know, mm. and you can return to our hunt for ethics episode from last season mm. if you want to debate whether or not that was the correct thing for Ben to do. Um, but I don't know, we were never going to get the bad guys both dying at the hands of Benjamin Franklin Gates oh, no. in, in a Disney produced family friendly franchise like this. Boy, is that a tongue twister? Yes, I agree with you completely. It is. It was actually odd for me to think of Ben, like, vanquishing mm-hmm. these people. And I don't know if that's because of the fact that the movie, because we said we had Agent Sadowski in here, is so kind of based in the criminal justice system uh, in and of itself that it, like, makes sense that, like, Ian's just going to go to prison at the end of the movie. Like, he... I was going to say he didn't murder anybody, but he might have murdered a couple people. We're not really clear on that. Yeah, we're not really clear on that. So, I don't know. But just, like, I don't think Ben would have done that. Also, for the record, I personally like that Ian is still alive because it gives me hope for his return in National Treasure 3. More Sean Bean. Although, Emily, what are the chances that Sean Bean shows up in two movies and doesn't die in both of them at the end? No. <laughs> well, I can't think of a better way to lead into our speed round. Um, so, y'all, the reason we're doing this speed round is number one, we think they're super fun for us anyway. And number two, there were other cliches in this Netflix special that we wanted to just say our piece on related to National Treasure, just in less detail. So what we're going to do is we're going to pitch a cliche. It's probably going to be very vaguely related to National Treasure. Emily is going to give us like a one-liner definition of what it is. And then I'm going to give my one-liner hot take of how I interpret it related to National Treasure. So this is going to be a joy for everyone. Are you ready, Emily? I am prepared. All right, let's start with Dead Man Walking. You're the best friend or a sidekick in older movies. You were a dead man walking. We talk about having family. We talk about retiring soon. You are most likely going to die. Yeah, so this is really not relevant at all to National Treasure. But I personally can't think of a better way to get rid of Agent Sadusky in National Treasure 3. But real talk, we've speculated about whether Disney will bring John Voight back for National Treasure 3. I don't know, could an off-season or between-the-movies dead man walking plot be a way to kill him off? Time will tell. All right, number two, we have Paris via the Eiffel Tower. Movies love to use Paris, and when they're using Paris, they basically always put the Eiffel Tower somewhere in a shot to tell you that they're in Paris. This is obviously very relevant to National Treasure 2 for all of 30 seconds. National Treasure 2 even movie magicked the Parisian Statue of Liberty to make it look like it's in a location closer to the Eiffel Tower so that they could get the Eiffel Tower in the shot. Next up, we have the trope that is a grocery bag with a baguette. Apparently, the way to signal to the audience that a character is a real person is to make them hold a grocery bag. And the way to make people know it's groceries is to have a baguette sticking out the top of the bag. So this isn't exactly relevant to National Treasure, though we will note once again that we see Riley carrying a grocery bag in the final scene of National Treasure 2 at Mount Rushmore, which he imminently drops comedically, of course, when a single hot girl pays him even five seconds of attention. (laughs) Next up, we have the concept of a jump scare or a mirror scare. Basically, someone pops up from somewhere they shouldn't be to scare you. Yeah, this is something that should really be reserved for horror movies. Um, But did you know that Patrick Gates' house is a horror movie? Yeah, Um, I thought this was a hard no cliche for National Treasure. But then I remembered the scene in National Treasure 2 when Patrick closes his front door and Mitch's crony is like revealed to be standing behind him and of course subsequently knocks him out. Next up, we have the Wilhelm scream. This is basically a specific scream that was recorded in the early days of movies and has been used in subsequent movies whenever people die or are injured. 
Yeah. So quick shout out to my friend, Dane, who was the first person to teach me what this actually was. My hot take is actually a question. Was Shaw's scream, the Wilhelm scream when he falls into the Parkington Lane pit? I am going to need someone to go watch that scene for me and report back. Next up, we have the cliche of running in heels. I mean, you have a woman. <laughs> she she's running in heels that she probably shouldn't be in to do her job to begin with. All right, claps for National Treasure. That seems to make the characters look like they're making logical decisions most of the time. Ben and Abigail actively get a change of clothes at Urban Outfitters to avoid basically this exact same situation mm -hmm. to not be running around in gala clothing, which includes Abigail's heels. You gotta love logical decisions. Next up, we have the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. This girl is very quirky and for some reason falls for the main guy, even though he brings basically nothing to the relationship. Yeah, I am literally so glad that Abigail is not presented in this way. And once again, it is literally because she and Ben are portrayed as intellectual equals that she does not come off in this way. Also, for what it's worth, I think Ben does bring something to their relationship, especially if their relationship involves finding buried treasure. And the final speed round element we have for you today is the final girl. There's always one girl in a horror movie who's more naive and pure than anyone else in the film. And she always outlasts her compatriots as well as the villain, him or herself. So this one is admittedly pretty irrelevant because National Treasure, once again, is not a horror franchise, but I elected to include it here for one reason and one reason only. If the final girl is supposed to survive because she's a stand-in for the audience, then I'm happy to report that our National Treasure's final girl, Riley Poole, will never die. <laughs> So, as always, I think we enjoyed that little speed round way more than we should, and hopefully you enjoy it as well. But that leads us to our final brief segment of today's episode. Now that we've talked about some very specific movie cliches and analyzed where they do or do not apply to our beloved franchise, how does National Treasure shake out when it comes to being a typical movie full of cliches? Um, I'm happy to kick off this conversation, Em, and say that, you know, after thinking really hard <laughs> about the 30 plus movie cliches presented in the Netflix special, National Treasure is honestly not super heavy on cliches, especially cliches that are borne out in a very obvious sense, right? We even had to make some caveats in our previous discussion or stretch things a bit to make some of what we talked about like fit into the conversation. Definitely. And I think that it, it's really interesting when we look at some of the other films that we've we've compared National Treasure to over I was gonna say the years. It's it's like been one year since we started this podcast uh, over the episodes. We are coming up on two years this summer. Okay, a year and a half over the course <laughs> of the episodes. Um, so what I did is I basically looked at some of the uh, cliche principles and tried to apply them to these other films to see whether or not they were present. Uh, and spoiler alert, they were. Um, so the Smurfette principle is true for all movies like Indiana Jones, The Da Vinci Code, and Jungle Cruise. Uh, it, it's similar to the way it is for National Treasure. The woman is there among a group of men, but not necessarily to be ogled at. She often has some proficiencies, kind of like Abigail does. Uh, she, she's bringing something to the table uh, in terms of intelligence and her skill set. And she often doesn't completely treat the men like they are children, though this, some of this is seen a little bit in the Jungle Cruise. Mm -hmm. um, the good guy always wins. I think this cliche is I think you'll be hard, it'll be, it's more difficult to find a movie that doesn't adhere to this cliche than it good is point. to find a movie that does. Very good um, and Indiana Jones especially adheres to this because of the fact that the movies usually result in Indiana Jones killing the villain. Hmm. Um, in The Da Vinci Code, one of the villains, Silas, does die 
but he's shot by the police, not by the main character, Robert Langdon. And then in the Jungle Cruise, you don't really, the villains kind of die, um, but also don't die. It's a little confusing. It's very Disney. Yeah. Uh, I also uh, looked at, uh, are the villains British? Um, uh, My initial answer was 100%. Um, in the Da Vinci Code, this is completely true. Uh, we have a bad guy, uh, Teabag, uh, who is uh, British, and then the other bad guy, Silas, is also British. He's played by Paul Bettany. Um, interestingly, in Indiana Jones and the Jungle Cruise, the villains tend to be German or Austrian, and I think that this is kind of to allude to a more Nazi influence mm-hmm. than it is to allude to them being necessarily like more highbrow Absolutely. or something so um not british but still from the european area uh and then car chases yeah uh once again it's hard to find a movie these days that doesn't have but that's an action and adventure movie that doesn't have a car chase scene um there are car chases all over the place in indiana jones there's a a car chasing after like a helicopter in one case uh same thing in the da vinci code it's similar to national treasure where they take you through a wide berth of um the country and seeing doing some sightseeing during that part interestingly in jungle cruise there wasn't actually a car chase um there was a boat that was moving but uh everybody was being chased by people who were on foot Right, right so uh, it's just uh, it's just interesting to me uh, that, you know, some of these cliches that we observe in National Treasure to varying degrees are also found in other action and adventure movies um, that were made around similar times. Yeah, it really feels like it's maybe a little genre dependent. Um, and I don't know, maybe a lot of cliches apply to like explicitly horror movies or explicitly rom-coms or explicitly dramas and not necessarily this interesting confluence of heist action adventure history (laughs) you know what I mean and maybe that's one of the reasons that the cliches are are less prominent but I also want to give credit where credit is due and say that we did identify cliches where they were not used explicitly or in their fullest but they definitely could have been in National mm-hmm. Treasure. And they were not. And that was a creative decision. I don't want to say those were intentional creative decisions to just not have a cliche there. But those decisions were made. And I think that they lend a lot. I think the cliches that were used actually lend a good amount to the movie. And where they were not used, they were not needed. Let's put it that way. But I will say that I think if you go back and listen to the conversation that we just had, if you were to compare National Treasure and Book of Secrets, I think you'll find that Book of Secrets has more cliches in it than the first movie. And I kind of wonder why that is. I have a theory, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts. I think my only theory is that National Treasure 2, as we know, was a little bit more rushed in production. And so it might have been easier to kind of hang our hats on some of the traditional cliches rather than make more kind of uh, arguably creative decisions to, to work around them. That is 100% what my theory was. Oh. And yeah, no, completely. It's, it's, it's the idea of taking what we've learned and applying it to this new conversation. Um, no, I completely agree. I mean, if you are pressed for time, if you're writing script pages the day before you're shooting them, why not take the puzzle pieces that exist in movie making land and put them together? Cause we know they work. That's why they exist, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think National Treasure does a good job of using cliches where we're needed, but not abusing them. And that is our thesis on movie cliches and National Treasure. So we hope you enjoyed that conversation, but we do want to know, did we miss anything? Are there any movie cliches that exist that, you know, weren't mentioned in the Attack of the Hollywood Cliches Netflix special that apply to National Treasure? Or were there cliches in the special that we didn't talk about 
that you think apply to national treasure, whether directly or indirectly, please tell us because we're genuinely curious. Yes, please tell us. And you can tell us on Twitter or Instagram. You can find us at NT Hunt Podcast. Uh, we are also available to listen to on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. Go ahead, like, subscribe, rate, review, do whatever you can on those various platforms. And like Aubrey said, let us know if we missed anything. Tell us how you feel about these cliches and just keep talking to us. Yeah, if you blow our minds with your revelations about the cliches in the movie, we'll definitely share what you sent us on social media. So added incentive. But while you think about that, watch National Treasure for the 84,000th time to answer this question of ours. We hope you look forward to our next new episode coming in two weeks time. It's going to be contentious, Emily. I'm not sure. You know, Emily likes Dan Brown. I don't have strong feelings, but they are more negative than positive. Regardless, we're doing one of our National Treasure comparison episodes. Emily, what are we comparing National Treasure to next week? You're comparing it to Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol. And we are mainly going to be comparing it to the new television show that has been released. Yes, indeed. So you have that to look forward to. But until then, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our National Treasure Hunt.